Why don't we turn in our Bibles now to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. We continue our study there in the book of 2 Corinthians and we look at chapter 12, verse 19 through 13, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 19. We have been in this book for the better part of this year. And as I've shared with you, come chapter 10, there was a pivot point in his letter as he defends his ministry. He defends his ministry before God in the light of the fact that false teachers have come into the church after he has left. The book of 2 Corinthians is the fourth letter that he has sent to them. And he defends his ministry, stating his concern for their well-being, as he will be visiting them a third time. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19. It reads as such. All this time you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish. And may be found by you to be not what you wish. That perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. That I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, And to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him. Because of the power of God directed toward you. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our God, we give you thanks for your word. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would fill us, illumine our minds, and grant to us understanding. Father, we pray that our fear of you would grow. That you would cause us to have a reverence for you and for your word. Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a story last week about a bus driver who was driving along his usual route 
And he stopped at a stop and a big hulk of a man got on. This man was six feet eight inches tall. He was built like a wrestler and his arms hung to the ground. And he went up to the bus driver and he glared at him and he said, Big John doesn't pay. And then he went to sit in the back of the bus. Well, the bus driver, he was a short, five foot, three inch tall, thin, very meek man. And so he didn't argue with Big John, but he wasn't very happy either. So we let him sit in the back of the bus. Well, the next day, he came to the same stop, opened the door, and there Big John was again. He climbed onto the bus, and the bus sort of tilted over to the side, and he said, Big John doesn't pay. And he went to sat in the back of the bus once again. And this began to irritate the, the driver. And so finally, he could stand it no longer. He signed up for some bodybuilding classes. He learned karate, judo, and some self-esteem classes. And so by the end of the summer, the bus driver had become stronger and much more confident. So it came again to the big stop when Big John entered the bus. And when Big John came up and he towered over this little bus driver and said, Big John doesn't pay... The driver finally took him on and he stood up and he glared at Big John and said, And why not? Big John was surprised and he said, Big John has a bus pass. (laughs) You see, most people, they don't like conflict. Most people avoid conflict and they hope that it can be diffused. They hope that it can be avoided and that's a good thing. But there are times when circumstances are such that potential conflict occurs they potentially occur and we are afraid of how things will be when we look into the future and things aren't as we hope they will be and we can foresee conflict coming up it's just around the corner and you're not looking forward to it and you hope that it won't be such that there will be Circumstances like that. Maybe your in-laws are coming to town. Maybe you have a sibling that you haven't seen because of some past issue. Maybe you have some type of family or friends or your neighbor is going to come over. Or maybe they ring your doorbell and you know every time that you've talked with them, it has not turned out well. And there's that fear of that conflict that is coming that is perhaps expressed in this passage as well by Paul. For his fear of confronting these Corinthians because of the life they have been living is expressed right here. And he sends a warning shot across their bow as he tells them they'd better shape up. And he shares his concern. And it is a concern born out of a godly heart, a heart that wants the best for them. It is a concern because of sin that has been occurring in the church. It is because of sin that these false teachers who have come in have propagated. It is about the state of the church and the influence of these teachers that have all come in concerns that are so serious 
because they affect the character of the church, because they affect the spiritual edification of the people, because they affect the people's godliness, their holiness, their purity, and he desires that they would come in a repentant state so they can reconcile their own relationship with God. His concern is a godly concern. And he's going to visit them for the third time, he says. He's going to visit them and his concern is not, well, is the building in good shape? Or has the church been growing in attendance? Or how are the small groups? Or are they getting enough of what they need? Do they have enough fellowship or whatever it may be? No, his concern is a spiritual concern about whether or not they are walking with God in holiness and purity. That is the heart of one, this Apostle Paul And it ought to be reflected also in our concern for the lives of other people. So we see here Paul's concern. And there are lessons for us that we might take. Are we just as concerned about the lives of other people in a similar way? The first concern he has is for their edification or for their building up. Verse 19. It says, all this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. All for your upbuilding. All for your upbuilding, beloved. And Paul's defense, you see, as I've shared in the past, Paul's defense wasn't ultimately for his own status in their eyes or ultimately wasn't for how he would look before them and so that he would feel good to massage his ego that had been so pummeled by their rejection or lack of action. He wasn't trying to bolster his own feelings about himself. In fact, in 1 Corinthians when he wrote to them, he said in verse 3 of chapter 4, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or any human court in fact I do not even examine myself for I am conscious of nothing against myself yet I am not by this acquitted but the one who examines me is the Lord the one who examines him and his view was God and that is very true God is the one who examines all of us God is the judge even though Paul was misunderstood even though he was criticized, even though he was slandered, even though he was maligned, even though he was libeled, all of these things, he was defamed, and yet his defense was not for himself. It was for their sake. Why? Because, you see, if he had not defended himself, they would have continued to follow these false teachers who had brought immorality into the church. And they were deceived and led astray. And he wanted them to turn around. He wanted the church to walk in the way of righteousness. And so he defended himself, knowing that God was the judge. And knowing that he had been true to the word of God. And he wanted them to walk in God's way. His concern was for their spiritual upbuilding. His, his concern was for their edification, that they would be blessed. His concern was that they wouldn't be taken or led astray. That they wouldn't be deceived. And that was the crux of his concern. That was the crux and the reason why he defended himself. Why? Because they would follow the truth, not that they would follow a lie. And that's helpful for us as well as we think to ourselves, are we just as concerned about the spiritual condition of others? Do we care? 
Do we care about how others are walking with God or the spiritual life of the church? Or many of you have had your students, they, they've gone to college or they've gone away for school. Are you concerned, just as concerned about how they are doing in their walk and their relationship with God as you are about their education? We often care about ourselves, sure, how we're doing in our walk. We're often caring about our own family. That's for sure. But do we care about how others within the church are doing? Do we care? Do we care about strangers or how they are? Do we feel that we are outward focused, that we're not so focused in how I am doing, the individualistic view of me and my family? But do we see ourselves as a blessing to others, that others might be built up because of us? What do we do? What's our perspective? Paul truly, he loved the church. He loved the church. We saw that last week. He loved the people. And it was highly likely he didn't know everyone there. He didn't say, you know what, I'm I'm only concerned with those that I know. Those that are my friends. He was concerned with the spiritual well-being of the church. That ought to be our concern as well, too. We ought to be concerned with the spiritual lives of those that God has brought into our life. That they would be built up. And you see, it begins with how you view yourself. It begins with how we view ourselves. Do we view ourselves as an ambassador of Christ? As a person who has been blessed so that we can bless others. As a person who holds and knows what is true. As a person who has been called to be a clean vessel. Used by God so that others would be blessed. Are we so self-focused and thinking, boy, how do I feel? Or I don't know anybody or, or whatever it may be. Are we others oriented? Is that how we are? Paul was concerned that they be built up. Paul was concerned that they would be blessed. He was concerned for the church. The second concern was that they would be godly and pure. Godly and pure. Verse 20 and 21. For I'm afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish. And there be strife and jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slander, gossip, arrogance and disturbances. Imagine if you're a parent and you have teenage or college age children. You're going on vacation And you say to them, well, here are the keys to the house. Make sure you feed the dog. Make sure you water my flowers. Make sure you behave yourselves. We're going to be gone for two or three weeks. And after two or three weeks, you come home and you're driving up the driveway. And there on the driveway, there are beer cans all over the place. The flowers have died. Their windows are broken. A couple of cars are parked on the lawn. And there's toilet paper all over the plants. And you're thinking to yourself, what did they do? Are we at the right house? And Paul's fear here is that he would come to the church and it would be still the same Drenched in fighting and immorality, drenched in jealousy and all sorts of sin, all sorts of division that he wrote to them about in the book of 1 Corinthians. You know, I remember a while back, a number of years ago, we had an annual church business meeting 
you know, and this is a business meeting that happens in the beginning of the year, and it's, it's usually lunch, and then we have an hour, hour and a half of, of reports and things like that, and we have some prayer. And there was a couple who was rather new to the church, and they came up to me and they said, um, after it ended, they said, uh, it, 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 is that all? And I said, yeah. And they said, is it you, usually like this? And I said, um, yeah, usually like this. And they said, it's so calm. And I said, oh, um, yeah, why? What are you used to? And they said, well, every year, the business meetings we went to at our other church, there was always a big fight. And people would stand up and they would give their opinion and there'd be arguments and people voicing out. It was always, it was always a fight. And I thought to myself, wow, boring is not bad. <laughs> and what they shared, though, isn't unusual. I mean, this past, within the past two weeks, I spoke with a couple of, of pastors that I knew. And both of them were interim pastors. And, and they shared with me about the fact that they had gone into these churches. And they were there as uh, recovery mode. Because the church had had some huge conflict. And the church had and the congregation was less than maybe half of what it was before and they suffered because of it. And the church could have the church could have imploded, but they were there and God had a ministry for them because of the conflict within the church. And this is the potentially what was going to happen in Corinth if they wouldn't repent and come to Christ. Paul was fearful that he would find all of these things that were happening, strife and jealousy and anger. The church at Corinth could have taken perhaps advice of a four-star general and our former Secretary of State, Colin Powell, in his book, My American Journey, when he writes, quote, While interviewing a young African-American soldier on the eve of Desert Storm, ABC correspondent Sam Donaldson asked, quote, How do you think the battle will go? Are you afraid? He asked the soldier, We'll do okay. We're well trained, the soldier said, gesturing toward his fellow GIs. And I'm not afraid because I'm with my family. The other soldiers shouted, tell him again. He didn't hear you. The soldier responded, this is my family. We'll take care of each other. We have to start thinking of America as a family Powell writes, stop screeching at each other, stop hurting each other. Instead, start caring for, sacrificing for, and sharing with each other. We have to stop constantly criticizing, which is the way of the malcontent. And to get back to the can-do attitude that made America. We have to keep trying and risk failing. He says, we cannot move forward if cynics and critics swoop down and pick apart anything that goes wrong to a point where we lose sight of what is right, decent, and uniquely good about America, unquote. And in a parallel way, such advice would be the advice to a church as well. There are some in every church that are just holding this grenade. They're waiting to pull the pin on and just waiting to explode because of malcontent. 
They don't have a can-do attitude. It's always a can't-do. Or this is bad. That's bad. This won't work. That won't work. This is so-and-so's fault. That's their fault. They're to blame. This is because of that. And there's strife and jealousy and tempers and disputes, arrogance, disturbances. All that Paul was concerned about in the church at Corinth. He wanted them to live rather than devouring one another, to live with love and unity, to be godly people. That's how he would hope they would find them, but his fear was that they would not. They were to be godly people. Terry Bridges writes that godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses upon God. From this Godward attitude rises the character and conduct that we usually think of as godliness, unquote. It's a life that is completely given over and constantly focused on God. Focused on God that exudes out of their life. This past week we had some we had our board meetings at Action International and there we interview the potential missionaries that would go out in the field and would be sent out by action. So we were interviewing candidates for the mission field, which we do twice a year. And one of the candidates was, in my opinion, exceptionally outstanding. Outstanding. And there were very few questions for this particular candidate. No, this candidate wasn't some seminary-trained speaker. They didn't have decades of full-time ministry experience. No, it wasn't some godly couple or some enthusiastic college student or even some seminary professor or retired pastor or radio personality or famous in any way. No, she was a widow. She cared for her husband as he had a prolonged bout with cancer. All who visited him, to them it was an opportunity to reach people for the gospel until the day that he died. She had her house for sale and she took her life savings. And she was interested in whatever ministry God would have for her within the bounds of scripture. She lived a very simple and frugal life. She wasn't intending on fundraising because she was simply going to live off of all that she had and from the life insurance or whatnot. And while most widows would move in with children or move to where their family and friends were, she was going to a pioneering field in one of the most Islamic countries in the world that persecutes Christians. And yet her demeanor, her attitude, the way that she spoke, the way that she carried herself, her reliance upon the Lord was of a full surrender to His will. And she would always repeat that. Whatever God wants of me, everything is His. Whatever God has for me, that is fine. And it was very striking to the entire board as we interviewed her and convicting for me at the same time because godliness was what characterized her. She wasn't like what Paul feared would happen in this church. People who would battle over things that would perhaps be not even germane to the gospel. 
she was a godly individual. Paul desired that they be godly people. And Paul, secondly, desired that they would be pure. He says, I'm afraid, verse 21, when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And he may mourn over, I may mourn over many who have sinned in the past, have not repented of their impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. You see, a number of false teachers had come into the church and we looked at chapter 11, verse 20. Back in that passage, if you turn to your Bibles, this is what they were like. He says to them, for you tolerate, writing to the Corinthians, you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. These false teachers had come in and with an authority that was false... They took charge, dictatorial charge. They took advantage of the people, they abused them, and the people submitted to these folks. They had come in, and this is another characteristic of a false teacher. Not only are they generally authoritarian and dictatorial and hard and sometimes abusive, but they are immoral individuals. They are immoral individuals, self-exalting, they ransacked the church. And he was afraid he would find that they had been sucked into this. Impurity comes from a word that is often associated in the New Testament with sexual sin. Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And then immorality comes from the word from which we get porneia. From which we get the word pornography, sometimes translated fornication in our Bibles. Any act outside of marriage that is of sex is immoral. And then sensuality, the public unrestrained flagrancy of it. The King James Version translated says lasciviousness or wantonness or licentiousness. It's associated with carousing, the party type, the promiscuous type. And Paul was concerned about the purity within the church. Not only their godliness in how they treated one another, but their purity which had been brought in by these other teachers. A form of idolatry with God hates. And rather than being grieved or mourning over this, the Corinthians... Early on, they were proud of their tolerance. And today, some churches celebrate immorality rather than denouncing it. Is that a serious concern for you? Is it a concern that others in the church are not living a godly or a pure life? Because a person with a godly mindset, what are they concerned about? A person with a godly mindset is concerned about the spiritual lives of others and about their godliness, about their purity. And I think often in this case, I think often of those who would go out from whether they be those on trips or whether they be those who go out as students and they come back. Are they people who continued to walk with God? In a godly way with a pure life. Thirdly, he was concerned for their repentance. This third time, he says in 13, 1 and 2, he's going to come. By two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. The third area of Paul's concern was that they be repentant because he wasn't going to spare any of them. And he quotes Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not rise up 
against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed on the evidence on the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed in other words where there is a crime where there is an accusation the old testament law provided no one could be convicted unless there were two or three witnesses unless there were two or three witnesses to corroborate the story this is the same thing that Paul or the Lord quotes in Matthew 18. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 18, a very familiar passage, but one in which Paul will bring here discipline to the church and those who are living a life of wantonness. Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. In other words, you see somebody in sin, they've done something wrong and they're unrepentant, you go to them in private. You don't tell me about it, you don't tell your spouse about it, you go to them and you talk with them in private. But if he does not, verse 16, listen to you, take two or more, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The second step is that you would take somebody else and appeal to this brother or sister who Whoever it is, that what may be witnessed may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, you tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is to be a part of the process. And Paul fears he may have to come and he will not spare any of them with the rod of discipline. And this is the responsibility of the church. This is the responsibility of the leaders of the church to make sure that the church is holy and pure. John MacArthur writes, As part of that process, God has given the church the responsibility of disciplining its sinning members. As noted above, the first instruction Jesus gave the church involved discipline. This is such a basic element of the church's life that Paul was outraged when the Corinthians failed to practice it. He strongly rebuked them for failing to discipline one of their members who was living in unrepentant immorality, unquote. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul had written to them earlier, Paul had written to them earlier that there was a person who was immoral among them who had his father's wife and they did nothing about it. In fact, they were arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, it said. And he said, your boasting is not good. They were boasting in the fact that they were so tolerant, that they were so accepting, that perhaps they were so loving, that they were so willing to have such an individual there. And he says it's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Do you not know that that is the case? And he wrote to them, don't associate with immoral people. Don't associate with them. Not the ones in the world, he says, or with a covetous one or, or with idolaters. But then you would have to go out of the world. But any so-called brother, he says, remove them from among yourselves. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 5. And it is what Paul was going to do. He was going to come to the church and he was fearful that what he would find was that he would find them biting and attacking one another, living impure lives, and he was going to discipline them and purify the church. 
Because otherwise it would become like an infectious disease within the church. No one sins, you see, in private without affecting the body. No one sins in private without affecting the body. You think, oh, this only affects me. I'll tell you, you know what? It affects you. It makes you less effective for the body. It makes you such that you are ineffective to minister and to bless others in the body. It affects the entire body, even sins that we think are just our own. And it is important that we deal with sin. In today's church, we deal with it in the church. And if we do, people will see we need to deal with it in our own lives. If we deal with sin, we don't compromise. In the book entitled The Pursuit of Holiness, the author writes, Our first problem, when he addresses people not overcoming sin, is that our own attitude, or our attitude towards sin, is more self-centered than God-centered. We're more concerned about our own victory, quote-unquote, over sin, than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. We cannot tolerate failure in our struggle with sin, chiefly because we are success-oriented, not because we know it is offense to God. We may think that it's an offense to God in our own mind's eye. We know that it is, but we're more concerned with, do I have victory and have I overcome this and how good of a person am I if I can do this and our focus is on me. W.S. Plummer says, quote, We never see sin aright until we see it as against God. All sin is against God in this sense that it is His law that is broken, His authority that is despised, His government that is set at naught. Pharaoh and Balaam, Saul and Judas each said, I have sinned. But the returning prodigal said, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And David said, against thee, the only I have sinned. The prodigal, the euphemism against heaven was against God. Do we recognize our sin as grieving the heart of God? Do we recognize our sin as ultimately against God and God is grieved? That is why Paul mentions that he fears that he will mourn over some of them who have not repented. That is why Paul says here in this passage that his heart might be broken and that God may humiliate him. Why? Because there is still egregious sin within the church. And that should be our heart as well. Not to be focused, am I having victory? But why would I want victory? Because it grieves the heart of God. And we see sin in the life of somebody else. We see sin in the life of our kids. Or we see sin in our own lives. Do we think to ourselves, God is hurting because of sin. I've grieved the Holy Spirit. And I need to make that right. Why? Because I want to love what God loves. I want to hate what God hates. I want my heart to break over the things that God's heart breaks over. Not because my parents will be unhappy. Or my brother or my sister will be upset if I do this. Or because my spouse will get mad at me. No, because it breaks the heart of God. It severs the relationship we have, the fellowship with God. 
We're still children of God, but the fellowship there, there's something that has come in between that joy that should be there when we make things right with God. And Paul's concern is for their repentance. He's concerned about building them up. He's concerned about their godliness. He's concerned about their purity. And he's concerned that they be repentant over sin because he has a godly mindset and he sees things from God's view. But they wanted to know, who, who do you think you are? Or what kind of authority do you have? Who made you judge and jury over us? Perhaps that was a question. For he here carries Christ's authority in 13.3. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me. Proof, they wanted. Who do you think you are? And his response is simply, it's Jesus Christ that speaks in me. It's Jesus Christ that is mighty in you. It's Christ who died for you. He lives today. He lives in you. And we will live because of His power. Look at what Christ has done in and through you. And He is powerful. And He has granted to you authority. Or He has granted to you to confront your own sin and the sins of others. By His Word and Paul's sentiment. Look, I'm the Apostle. I'm this and that. That's not His... That's not His authority. He comes because why? We follow Christ and we're obedient servants of Him. Christ has done all of this for you. And He comes with Christ's authority. Do you remember in that passage we read in Matthew 18 about church discipline? You know, in 19, verse 19, it says, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they may ask... It shall be done for them by my Father who are in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And oftentimes that passage is used in the, in the context of, of a prayer meeting or something like that. And saying, well, Jesus is there. If you two or three of you gather together in his name, he's there listening to you. And I remember as a kid struggling over that. And I remember going to a conference and asking the, the speaker, you know, uh, I don't understand. Isn't Jesus here when I'm praying by myself? Why does it say two, two or three? I mean, and I realized and learned later, this passage is in the context of discipline. About disciplining the unrepentant. That there, if there is confirmed sin within the church... And somebody says, well, who do you think you are? Who made you judge and jury? What authority do you have? Just like they were saying in verse 3 here to Paul. Christ says, don't worry. He is there in your midst. He is going to be there and confirming along with you. You come with the authority of Christ and confront sin by His Word. And see, a godly mindset is what Paul had towards these Corinthians. He wasn't looking forward to the conflict. He was fearful that there would be mourning in his own heart. And he was saying, you know, I've said all these things, not to defend myself before you, but because I want you to be built up. I want you to be edified. I want you to be godly. I want you to be pure. I want you to be repentant. Because I want you to walk rightly with God. He wasn't there to say, I want to win an argument. I'm going to kick these folks out because they defame me. I'm not there to do whatever. He's there because of their sake. He's going to come and visit them. And the question, perhaps for us, what are we more concerned about? 
Are we concerned about how we are living for Christ? Are we more concerned about making a living in order to make ends meet? Are we concerned about how our love for Christ is? Are we concerned about the grades our kids get? Are we concerned about the things that concern Christ? How people are in their walk and their relationship with God? Are we concerned about the things that are trivial and passing? We see ourselves as somebody who has been called to bless others, to call and confront others in a loving way, to say and tap on somebody's shoulder, are you sure you want to do that? Because I don't know if that pleases God. Are we sad when somebody else sins because we think to ourselves that breaks the heart of God who died for you, who died for them? We can tell people. People often say, that's not my job, that's, that's the pastor's job, or that's, that's so-and-so. They know them better, or whatever it may be. But we may say, oh, that, that's not my personality. We may say, oh, that's, that's just not how I do things. But Paul, his concern, his concern drew him to say and speak up and to confront sin. So that others might live a godly and a pure life. Knowing that, you know what, when you do, Christ, Christ desires that you know His authority follows you. Because the Word of God convicts. The Word of God and the Word of truth drives people and confronts their sin. And a godly heart that truly loves people. If you truly love people, you will love and care for their relationship with God. Enough to want to be a part of them walking with God. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. Father, for your word sharper than any two-edged sword. And Father, it is your word that convicts. It is your word that purifies. It is your word, Father, that grants to us truth that we might live in a way that is righteous before you. Father, we pray that you would cause us to have a godly mindset that cares about the spiritual lives of others desires that they be built up, desires that they be godly and pure, desires that they live a life of repentance and is not afraid to confront in love, knowing that you, Father, desire that we do for your glory, for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.